Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, March 29th, 2012. Mm-hmm. All right, yes, yes. Long segment. Okay, yeah. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the discernment work and compare what people are saying out there, help you to understand current uh, religious news stories and uh, what they mean and how they impact you. And, uh, you know, it's all about really getting to the gospel and supporting and promoting and proclaiming the historic Christian faith, once for all delivered to the saints, the one that doesn't change, the one that will uh, be preached and proclaimed until the last day when Jesus arrives to judge the living and the dead. Yeah, that's that's kind of what it's all about. And, uh, you know, it, it, so we kind of work from the premise that um, doc, doctrine matters, sound doctrine matters, false doctrine enslaves. False doctrine is a form of sin. It's, it's, it, it is a subcategory of the sin of idolatry, and we are to have our lives transformed, our minds transformed and renewed by the Word of God. And every thought is to be taken captive and made obedient to Christ, including false doctrine. That's kind of the idea. All right, so I'm looking at what we've got to cover today. And i got to warn you, I have got a long segment. And what I mean by that is that um, yesterday I, on the program I told you that I'm working on you know, really trying to drill down into the Mark Driscoll news to to make sense of it and uh, and as a result of that I've kind of got my first crack at the Mark Driscoll news and we're going to be spending time looking at what's been said we're going to take some time to listen to what Mark Driscoll has said in the past and uh, I finally am beginning to think I got a radar fix on this guy and um you know, I have in the past said some positive things about Mark Driscoll, and I've pointed out the fact that he preaches the gospel. This is most certainly true. He does. I consider him to be a Christian brother. And at the same time, uh, he's kind of like Forrest Gump's proverbial box of chocolates. 
Uh, you just never know what you're going to get. So as a result of it, there are some things that he says and does that I think are not good. In fact, very dangerous and not beneficial to the overall health of the body of Christ uh, in that I believe he is one of the main key characters uh, of people out there promoting what I would consider the growing ecclesiastical heresy. Um, and that is is that uh, he's got a, a a false ecclesiology that he works from, and one that um, I think has been demonstrated via evidence, uh, undeniable evidence, uh, an ecclesiastical heresy that basically demonstrates that um, uh, his model for doing church leaves him unaccountable, leaves him. Um, having way too much power, and uh, and it looks like he has been tempted to abuse that power and has given in to those temptations. Uh, that's again, we'll kind of start to unpack this on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And so uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about. I've already kind of tipped my hand here. I, I've got a quick email that I want to read. I've got a Patricia King update. We're going to sp- after the Patricia King update, we are going to spend what remains in the first hour. Look, basically trying to answer the question, what do the changes in Mark Driscoll's roles mean? How are we, what's the right way to understand what's going on there? And then in hour number two, we're going to be listening to a good sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley uh, uh, based on uh, Ephesians chapter one. And the name of the sermon is Adoption and Redemption. So uh, that's what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We've got a lot of ground to cover uh, make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, uh, if you have them and the weather permits, they do enhance your listener experience. Because everybody knows, you know, experience, your experience is the most important thing nowadays, right? So, I, you know, I don't want to be left out as far as people who care about the experience you have while listening to Fighting for the Faith. So I have determined uh, through personal experience and uh, through uh, the help of others, that uh, if you want to enhance your listener experience here at Fighting for the Faith, you do that by uh, donning a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers. Now, if you don't have a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers, you can actually uh, go online and order a pair. We have several featured at the Fighting for the Faith website. Just look along the sidebar. I think at the left-hand sidebar, you can click on We've got the Monty Python uh, fuzzy bunny slippers with a sharp pointy teeth. That's really, those are great. And and then we got some more standard pairs of fuzzy bunny slippers that you can purchase. They do enhance your listener experience. Remember, it's all about the experience. I mean, we're trying to be postmodern and relevant here. All right, so let's dive into the program proper, and that requires me to do this. Now, are you looking for some freedom from addictions? Well, if you're looking for freedom from addiction, I mean, the simple solution. I mean, you're just looking for a miraculous miracle pill that all you got to do is pay the certain person of God and they'll give you the inside track as to how to overcome uh, addictions, well, then this video's for you. I mean, this is Patricia King's latest and greatest prophetic words of knowledge slash advice offered at the xpmedia.com website. 
with, with with the latest and greatest right off the presses, direct revelations from God, the Holy Spirit to Patricia King. Um, here, listen in. Hi there. You know, Jesus said, he who the sun sets free is free indeed. And one of the purposes of the anointing is that we would set captives free. And today on this video clip, if you are addicted I believe that freedom is coming to you. In fact, now I need to warn everybody. Um, there are some of you out there who may be tempted to think that you're addicted to listening to Fighting for the Faith. I, this is a common misunderstanding. This is not an addiction. I just want to let you all know that you can't be addicted to Fighting for the Faith. There are no artificial sweeteners, um, MSGs, or chemicals added you know, to enhance anything here at Fighting for the Faith. And fuzzy bunny slippers are not something that, uh, you know, that is a chemical enhancer for the program. However, that being the case, from time to time, I do let you all know that we don't have a problem if you want to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith because the biblical prohibition is against, well, drunkenness, being enslaved to that gift that God has given us. So, you know, th that would be the only thing. But see, you got to keep in mind, if if you're abusing that gift, that's a chemical addiction that really doesn't have to do with fighting for the faith. So fighting for the faith is not an addictive program and or substance, even though it may appear at times that you seem addicted to this program. You're really not. I just want to let you know that. Miracles of deliverance are going to go through your computer screen right into your life. and Wow, miracles of deliverance through my computer screen. Who knew? Break those chains of addiction. You know, we can be slaves to anything that we give ourselves to. Some of you might be watching and maybe you're addicted to uh, prescription drugs. Maybe you're addicted to um, street drugs or alcohol or uh, to food. Maybe you're addicted to compulsive behavior. Maybe you're addicted to... Um, uh, now, I want to make something clear. Um, the list that she's just rattling off right now these are serious addictions, very serious. And if you're suffering from any type of addiction like that she's describing, don't go to Patricia King to get a solution or help for the get somebody who knows what they're doing to help you here. I mean, this would be like going to the village witch doctor, you know, to, uh, <clears throat> you know, to overcome a problem of this nature. Sex. Maybe you have a sexual addiction. There's many things that you can be addicted to. Man, that was a bad pause. <laughs> I did not see that one coming. Sometimes people are addicted to work or to exercise, but Jesus is greater than it all. We have actually um, a, a series that I teach. Yeah, Jesus truly is, and you don't really understand what it is that he teaches. Called uh, the School of Deliverance, the Deliverance School. And we also have a soaking CD called... The... You, you really think your soaking CD is going to help somebody overcome a compulsive uh, addiction? Ugh spiritual cleanse that are helpful tools for coming free from addiction so you can just soak under the spiritual cleanse and there's one particular a soak under the spiritual cleanse Ugh. back about free from addictions but today i have a specific area i want to address and then i'm going to pray and i believe that when we pray things are going to break off of you and i've got a number they're going <laughs> to listen <laughs> i don't know if i want to uh, uh pray uh, let her pray this prayer because things are going to break off me listen there 
Yeah, I need everything that's on me to work. I don't want it breaking and falling off. I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to lose a finger, a hand, an arm, a leg, you know, an ear, and my nose, or you know, any any other digits. You know, I don't want anything breaking off of me. Number of words of knowledge that I want to bring later on in this clip as well. But what is really on my heart is I sense that there are a few of you watching this program that are addicted to relationships. Mm. Okay, so you have an addictive relationship. <sighs> and for one of you that's watching, you are an intercessor. Mm. So if you're an intercessor, you know, and there's one of you out there that is. You are an intercessor and you're a personal uh, intercessor mm -hmm. for someone who is in ministry and you and you love your leader you are you are touched by their life their ministry you love your leader you've got a you you've got a good heart toward them you've been interceding you want to see them come through but because of of the deep intercession that you've been in and because of your interaction with your leader there's developed almost like a codependency mm. so you you have an intercessory codependent in addictive relation this is confusing between the two of you and you've become addicted to each other uh -huh. and it's become unhealthy that relationships become unhealthy and you've 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 recognized mm, maybe there's some lines being crossed or maybe this is just a little bit too much and you tried to pull back but it just keeps coming back together that's because it's an addiction now let me tell you something uh, um it sounds Sounds like a relationship on its way to adultery. Um, yeah, let's call this what it is. Sin. Break it off. Repent. Be forgiven. Christ died for that. I've noticed about addicted relationships is that when you have that kind of codependency, when you have that kind of addiction, it usually has to be severed. When there's inordinate affections or unordained affections or lines being crossed, the only way to really, truly come free is to cut it off completely. Yeah, it's called repentance. <laughs> I've had people disagree with me many times on that, that, but when they've tried to make it work out, oh, we'll just be friends, or we'll just do it this way, or we'll just cut back on this, or cut back on that, it never works. And so if there has that connection been made, the addiction's been made, you have to actually sever the relationship, even severing the position. I had someone recently was in a situation like this with an intercessor, and they said, well... You know so how do you sever the position of intercessor? I, and I, do you have, yeah, in your organizational workflow, I mean, do you have, you know, like your HR department, you got your accounting, marketing, sales, um, you know, maybe product development. Oh, and over there, the, you got the intercessor department. Yeah, and, and you got people who are intercessors in the in the organization. And you know, now you need to just destroy the 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 thing altogether. Yeah, get rid of their position. <laughs> who is she talking to? You no, know, we want to keep that which is good, but just sever that which is not good. But it, it's like you're you you know, it's like being an alcoholic, mm -hmm. and you keep the body bottle of whiskey right on your counter in front of you. It's not gonna. It's not going to help you come free. It's it's too easy to grab a hold of it and to get engaged in that which you're addicted to when it's right before your eyes. It's right in. Yeah, why is it that when she has these direct, you know, words of knowledge and stuff like that, you know, uh, th this is kind of similar to uh, Melissa Fisher's Holy Ghost answering machine service. You know, where God the Holy Spirit calls her up and you know says things like, 
Hi, Melissa. This is the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I, I, I got a message I got to get to somebody and I just can't seem to locate him. Could you, could you please, you know, uh, you know, send them the message on one of your fancy videos and, you know, it, uh, uh yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, um, weird thing here though. Um, I don't need Patricia King to tell me, or you don't even need Patricia King to tell you that adultery is a sin and that if you're in a married relationship, you shouldn't be uh, in, a, in a situation where you're, you're going to become emotionally attached inappropriately uh, with somebody who isn't your spouse. I mean, I, I've got the word of God that pretty much lays this out very clearly, and it, it even uses some like people who've well not taken the uh, the commandments of the Lord to heart and have disobeyed them and the consequences that they've suffered as a result of it. So I mean, why would I need Patricia King telling me what God's word so clearly teaches already anyway? You understand what I'm saying? Your mitts is right before you all the time. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I break Oh no. No, she's now she's now breaking things in the name of Jesus. Oh no. Sever those ungodly soul ties. I break and sever What? You're breaking and severing ungodly soul ties. What is a soul tie? I've never seen that statement before. That addicted relationship that you're in with your spiritual leader, but you might have to resign from your position. God will open up new doors, but you you have to recognize this because it could be very harmful and it could get into some serious things. In fact, someone's watching right now where it actually has crossed some serious lines. You're a Christian leader. Okay, so now let's 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 talk about this the way it should be talked about biblically. Okay, so apparently we got a message to somebody out there where this has now crossed the line. That line would be called adultery. Okay, plain and simple. That's the line. It's called adultery. Now, I'm sure that there are folks out there who are listening to Fighting for the Faith and to this, this edition of Fighting for the Faith, and you have committed the sin of adultery. Very serious sin. What are you going to do? You just going to clean up your act? Do you think that's going to provide comfort for you in light of the fact that you've committed a sin as egregious as that, as damaging as that? You think, oh, I know. I'll just have Patricia King pray over me and break the soul tie so that I can then get her soaking CD and then I'll overcome the addictive behavior. I mean, what about the cross? See, in a situation like that, a sin like that could eat away at your conscience to the point where you know deep down inside, maybe even not that deep, that you're, well, you're living a lie. You're doing something you ought not to do, and you feel guilty for it, as you ought to. So what kind of comfort do you have? I mean, a sin like that can lead to feelings of despair, to belief that, now I've done it. I'm not even a Christian anymore. Jesus can't forgive that, right? Wrong. Jesus can forgive that because Jesus bled and died for that. And he calls you first and foremost to repentance and faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins.
and bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. So here we've got a serious, serious problem, a serious sin being discussed by Patricia King. And I, I'm gonna say, I want to make something clear here. Uh, the reason why I'm saying it's serious is not because in the grand scheme of things, it's as if certain sins are more serious than others. The reality is, is that every single breaking of God's law damns you. It can damn you. It's something that that people will be burning in hell for. You understand what I'm saying? You know, from, you know, from idolatry to adultery to lying to stealing to coveting, you know, go down the list and, and break them all up. So, but um, adultery is one of those sins that destroys families, destroys individuals. And when it's found out, I mean, we're talking about something that destroys the psyche of children as well and sends people, it, it breaks them in ways that have profound, has a profound impact for, you know, it, it's like letting off a nuclear bomb and things just are washed away in, in the destructive force of that explosion. So understand what we're talking about here. We're talking about a sin that has deep and serious consequences. And what's her solution? Well, a soaking CD, you know, soaking. And, and, and she's now praying to break, you know, soul ties and things like that. Like I said, this is like going to a witch doctor when you've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. A lot of good this is going to do. The reality is, is that there's only one solution for that sin. One. And that's the gospel. The good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ on the cross. Yes, Jesus can forgive even that. And Jesus can forgive even you. That's what the good, the good news of the gospel is all about. So here, I mean, here's Patricia King. Freedom from addiction. Serious sins being discussed here. We're talking about demonic-powered addictions and enslavement to really gross, fleshly sins. And what's the solution she's offering? Well, she's breaking soul ties in the name of Jesus and offering a soaking CD. Right. You're watching this and you realize that the lines that, 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 that you've been walking in with your intercessor have been crossed. There's an inordinate affection and this needs to be dealt with immediately before it gets worse. And you can't, you can't, you know, just continue on and try to make it work. It won't work. It must be severed. So in Jesus' name, I sever that right now. Yeah, a lot of good that's going to do. Well, there you go. You've been set free. She, you know, Patricia King just severed that right for you. I mean, right there, right now, because she apparently has superpowers to do stuff like that. No, the thing that breaks the power of sin is Christ's shed blood on the cross and you being forgiven. That's what breaks the power of sin. All right, moving along here. Got a quick email I want to read. Got an email from a guy by the name of Jonathan, and I don't know what town he's from. But I do know that he sent me this email from his iPhone. Which means he can't be a, a, a bad person at all, because, you know, I love Apple products. I mean, got an iPhone, Macintosh. You know, I'm, a, I'm an Apple user. I'm an Apple guy. So that means Jonathan's okay with me.
All right, Jonathan writes, the uh, the subject is Emergent Bible, and Jonathan writes, he says, Hey, Chris, I was having a conversation with a friend about your program. We discussed last Friday's episode in that horrible book about a new way to read the Bible or something. Yeah, John Shelby Spong's way. Uh, it, it was as confusing talking about it as it was listening to the author talk about his book. So we came to the conclusion that they should rewrite the Bible for themselves. This would be the Emergent crowd. And use only question marks for punctuation. So allow me to demonstrate. For it's, <laughs> so the way this goes is is that rather than the statement for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that you know that statement is now a question for for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, you got everything's with a question mark, and then here's another one. Um, so this has got to be read with a question mark. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, or how about this one? Jesus wept. <laughs> or this one. I'm a new creation in Christ? Really? <laughs> or we could do this, uh, you know, the, what uh, Luke writes at the beginning of um, his uh, first book, uh, in the book of Acts. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given commands of the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen... Uh, anyway, he says, just a thought. Love your program. I sent a lot of emails. I hope you're getting them. Yes, I am, Jonathan. Thank you. Uh, by the way, it's from Jonathan? So, yeah, everything's with a question mark. But that's a that's a fine idea. I think uh, that the the new emergent Bible um, uh, from uh, from Paget Productions uh, should be uh, – all of the punctuation should be changed from, you know, commas and colons and periods and exclamation points to every sentence ending with a question mark. I think that's a fine and dandy um, idea, don't you? Uh, it makes the point, though. Uh, but that leads back to the very first question ever asked in all of Scripture. Did God really say? That seems to be the uh, what the emergent church and many of in postmodern Christianity seem to be about doing, picking up the devil's project of questioning the Word of God. And, uh, yeah, that seems to be what they're all about. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. You have reached the voice mailbox for 
Melissa Fisher. Please leave a message after the tone. When finished, you may press one for more options. Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, I was wondering if you could help me out. I'm, I'm trying to uh, you know, get a hold of a guy named Vincent. But I, I can't remember his last name. This guy wants me to make myself real in his life, but I can't find his address or his phone number or email. The world is so complicated. You, you know how hard it is to find somebody if you can't remember their last name? Do you know how many Vincents there are in the world? He's, he said that he would leave his sin behind if I could just, you know, somehow reach out to him and prove that I'm real. So if you can make one of your really fancy videos and tell him that I'm calling him by name, but don't tell him that I can't remember his last name, I, I really would appreciate it. Oh, and uh, one more thing. You might want to mention something about his adventurous heart. That way he'll know that the message is for him. Thanks, Melissa. I, you know, I don't know what I'd do without you. Hey everyone, this word is for Vincent. Vincent, the Lord calls you by your name and he is making himself known to you today. Now that he has made himself known to you, remember what you said. You said, Lord, if you would call me, if you would make yourself real, that I would come and I would leave, absolutely leave all of it behind and come to you because you've been wavering between two opinions. Now here it is. Vincent, the Lord is calling you. Come to him. The life is better on this side. Believe me. Give up the unfruitful works of darkness and walk completely in the light. And I tell you, Vincent, you won't be sorry. The Lord is ready to show you a mighty, mighty adventure. That adventurous heart that you have, the Lord is going to really, really reach in and he's going to satisfy that heart in you and it's going to be even more than you ever could have planned on your best day so vincent come to the lord wait no longer vacillate between two opinions no longer Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, the only thing that has the power to overcome sin is Christ and Him crucified for our sins and His shed blood on the cross, not soul tie breaking by Patricia King. Just a reminder, 
Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, let's do this here. From the Christian Post, the headline reads, Mark Driscoll steps down as leader of Acts 29 and resigns from the Gospel Coalition. Okay, now you may have seen these stories out there on the news. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, portions of them. And we're going to ask the question, what do these changes mean? What do they mean? Now, yesterday I was still trying to, you know, really kind of piece it all together and figure out what's really going on here. Because, you know, the question that I had was, are these changes, are any of these changes a result of or influenced by um, a recent series of kind of like scandalous posts that have been put out there on the internet by people who are former members and former pastors at Mars Hill. Uh, most notably, most notably is the website called Joyful Exiles. Um, in fact, let me let me pull this up. Exiles.com. There we go. Yep, that's it. JoyfulExiles.com. J O Y F U L X. E-X-I-L-E-S dot com, joyfulexiles.com. And uh, if if you want if you kind of want to get an insider's look at the abuse of power by Mark Driscoll, whom I believe is one of these guys who is uh blatantly um guilty of and responsible for promoting what I would consider an ecclesiastical heresy, uh, employing a foreign, non-biblical model for church leaders that is that actually runs counter to the very heart and soul of Jesus Christ. But uh, if you haven't seen this website, you're going to need to spend some time here. Uh, this is a, um, a website put together by Joanna and Paul P- uh, Petrie. And um, what I mean, if there's anybody who did this right, it would be these guys. And here's the reason being is that they tell their story, but most notably, they document everything with emails and, and their responses and all kinds of of data and documentation that really you would only expect to see from somebody who's trained in the legal profession, which I think uh, Paul Petrie uh, was, is maybe still an attorney, but he was an attorney for quite a, a long time. So what you would want to do is you want to read this, the uh, the entire post entitled My Story, but you would also want to take a look at the timeline. So when you first get there, on the right-hand side of the of the of this website there is a link that says timeline click on it and as you're reading you know read the story first the my story segment first after you're done reading that make sure that you uh, uh that you take a look at the timeline for the backup documentation so spend some time on there joyfulexiles.com so here was the question that was in my mind okay in light of the very 
damaging information that was posted at the Joyful Exiles website. Also, the 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 damage that has that uh, Mark Driscoll's reputation and character sustained post Elephant Room too. Remember, he was uh, you know he and and um, James McDonald were the two most responsible uh, perpetrators, if you would, of the crime that was committed on the church by basically glossing T.D. Jakes' word faith heresy. And uh, and you know doing what they can to smuggle him in as a Christian brother by having him affirm the language of the Trinity that he believes in three persons, but then completely letting him off the hook by letting him redefine what he believes about God using modalistic terms. Okay, so so you know so here's the deal. I mean, as a result of that, there have been churches who have left the Acts twenty nine network. There has been grumblings within the Acts 29 network as a result of what Mark Driscoll did at Elephant Room 2. Okay, so the question I had is, is how am I to understand these, these, you know, these big changes that have been, uh, you know, basically, you know, discussed, you know, on blogs, the Acts 29 network website, on Mark Driscoll's own, uh, blog? Um, how, how? What's the right way of understanding this? Is, is any of this have anything to do with Driscoll needing to repent, being remorseful for his abuse of power, being remorseful for the crime that he perpetrated with James McDonald on the church in smuggling, um, you know, trying to smuggle T.D. Jakes in as a Christian brother? Um, see, that that's the question that needed to be an- answered. My my, I'll give you my answer to the question right up front before we read the story. Not at all. In fact, if you think that the changes that have gone and that are going on in Mark Driscoll's role have any roles have anything to do with him being remorseful or repentant, you're mistaken. In fact, Driscoll isn't taking a backseat. Uh, Driscoll isn't being demoted. Driscoll's being promoted. He's going to have even more influence and more power. This is not about him releasing power. This is about him having more power. I'll demonstrate that as we go. So uh, this is the story is written by Alex uh, Mirashko of the Christian Post. Mark Driscoll steps down as leader of Acts 29, resigns from the Gospel Coalition. Acts 29 Network co-founder Mark Pastor Mark Driscoll has stepped down from the reins of the successful global church planting organization to make room for Pastor Matt Chandler as president. It was announced Wednesday. Later in the day, in another major move by Driscoll, the Gospel Coalition announced that they had received a letter of his resignation as a council member. A change in priorities was the reason given by Driscoll to, who, who plans to devote more time to his growing church. Uh, Acts 29 is a network of church planters that emerged from a small band of brothers to more than 400 churches in the United States and and networks of churches in multiple countries. Driscoll, who is the lead pastor of Seattle-based Mars Hill Church, issued a statement through Acts 29, which gave a brief history of the group and how the decision was made. Quote, recently I sensed that not all was well in Acts 29. As my concerns grew, I resumed the presidency of Acts 29 to work directly with our network captains, 
most influential pastors and staff, Driscoll stated, It seemed to me that some of our relationships, board size and structure communication systems and such were not as effective as we needed, which is to be expected to some degree in a large, complex, fast-growing entrepreneurial network such as ours. After meeting for a full day with Pastor Chandler and Darren Patrick, along with the executive elders of Mars Hill, he stated that a decision was made on how to restructure Acts 29. Quote, Together we decided in light of all the complexity we're facing that the best thing for Acts 29 going forward would be for Matt Chandler to assume the presidency, move the network offices to Dallas, and select his Acts 29 staff, Driscoll said. The Seattle pastor said he will remain on the Acts 29 board of directors and support his friend Chandler. All of the network of Mars Hill local churches will continue to be part of Acts 29 as well, he said. Now, so here's the deal. Um, If you're familiar with how governance and, and corporate structure works, Driscoll has only basically handed the presidency over to Chandler, but um, Driscoll sits on the board of directors for Acts 29. So he's not going to be involved in the day-to-day operations of Acts 29, but as a member of the board of directors, he has a direct in well, unchallengeable say in what Acts 29 does and sets the you know the, the course for it. People who are on the board of directors of corporations are the ones ultimately who have the power. The CEO or the president in any uh, type of organization is actually accountable to and responsible to the board of directors. So here's the deal. Yes, um, uh, Mark Driscoll has resigned the presidency of Acts 29, but he's still part of the top dog part of the organization uh, on the board of directors for Acts 29. So he hasn't really released any power. He's just given the day-to-day responsibilities to Matt Chandler, who is accountable to him and accountable to the Acts 29 board of directors. Got it? So there's no repenting going on here. This is just, you know, know, he's got more important things to do. What those things are, we'll we'll see if he, he tells us. But so Chandler's responsible. So my my immediate question to Matt Chandler as the new president of Acts 29 is, can a, a church be a, a part of the Acts 29 church planting network and publicly state that uh, T.D. Jakes is a modalistic heretic and that what took place at Elephant Room 2 was not in accord with sound doctrine and, and contradictory to what the Bible teaches? So that's my question. Can a church be a member of the Acts 29 network and publicly challenge what happened at Elephant Room 2? That would that'd be my first question to Matt Chandler, okay? Um, I would be curious to find out what the answer to that question would be. So, in fact, I might, you know, send him a, you know, an, an email. I've, you know, tried reaching out to Matt Chandler in the past, haven't been successful in getting him to return uh, you know, my correspondences or questions that I've posed to him you know, on the telephone through his uh, his assistant. But, you know, that would be my question. So, you know, uh, you know, can a member, you know, can they publicly challenge, disagree with and say it was wrong? What happened in Elephant Room 2? Or are they beholden 
to the decisions of the Elephant Room 2, which was in effect a, a an ecumenical evangelical church council whose decisions are binding on the consciences of all pastors within the Harvest Bible Chapel system and uh, you know until you know uh, Driscoll resigned it was clear uh, also beholden upon the people in Acts 29 because you think back to uh, the people in uh, the pastors in the Acts 29 network who vocally verbally and publicly stated that what happened at Elephant Room 2 was contrary to Scripture, not in accord with sound doctrine, and they disagree with what happened, uh, they were shunned. That was that was their punishment. They were shunned um, and told that they were being shunned for publicly disagreeing with um, the head of their tribe, Mark Driscoll. So, I mean, interesting stuff going on there, but... Um, let's see here. Um, Chandler, uh, all of the network of Mars Hill local churches will continue to be part of the Acts 29 as well. He said, quote, I want to thank the people of Mars Hill for pouring millions of dollars into Acts 29 over the years. Driscoll added, uh, quote, as for myself, I want to humbly serve Jesus and his men in Acts 29 by doing whatever is best for them. Going forward, I will gladly remain on the Acts 29 board, supporting Matt along with Darren and whomever else Matt believes best fits the board. Chandler who is the lead pastor of the Village Church in Highland Village, Texas, also wrote a letter about the group's transition posted on various websites. Quote, I am greatly humbled by the opportunity to serve our great God and King, as well as our movement in the capacity of president of Acts 29. Chandler stated, our meeting in Seattle couldn't have been more spirit-empowered and unifying than it was, and I flew home excited and invigorated by the opportunities that are before us. Quote, there are a few things that excite me, uh, there are a few things that excite me, like planting churches and seeing people come to know, love, and mature in Christ. So this task allows me to serve in an area of my passion, he said. We are in the process of transitioning Acts 29 from Seattle to Dallas. At present, that involves gathering all of the information we can on Acts 29's budget process, setting up Acts 29 legally in Texas, etc. Pastor Scott Thomas, who was a board member and director of the group at one time, was not mentioned in Driscoll's letter, but Chandler wrote that Thomas was taking this transition as a chance to pursue other opportunities he has before him and will not be making the move to Dallas. Scott and I are on very good terms and had dinner just this past weekend where he informed me of his deep love for you and the network we felt like God has released him from leading Acts 29. He's excited about what God has next for him, Chandler wrote. In a development that followed later on Wednesday after the announcement about the reorganization of Acts 29, the Gospel Coalition announced that they received a letter from Driscoll that stated he was stepping down from the Council of the Gospel Coalition. The coalition is a, quote, fellowship of evangelical churches deeply committed to renewing their faith in the gospel of Christ and reforming ministry practices to conform fully to the scriptures. Quote, Mark let us know in advance of his intentions, part of a major reorganization of his priorities and a changing of the guard in Acts 29. We are saddened by his departure, but understand that all busy people must establish priorities. Officials from the group posted Wednesday afternoon. Quote, the council is grateful to Mark for his contributions to the Gospel Coalition during the past decade. In the months and years ahead, we will certainly be praying for him, his family, and the ministries he influences uh, the Gospel Coalition wrote. So um, in, a, in Driscoll's letter posted on the group's website, he clarified that he was not asked to step down, yeah, which is kind of problematic for me. Why wasn't Driscoll asked to step down? 
it's clear that he was uh, you know the primary accomplice in the crime that uh, James McDonald perpetrated against the body of Christ at Elephant Room 2. So in the days that followed Elephant Room 2, none of the members of the Gospel Coalition asked Driscoll to step down. How did he get off scot-free? I mean, is the guy made out of Teflon? I mean, he was the one asking the questions. He was the one asking the questions of T.D. Jakes. He was the primary instrument by which James McDonald at Elephant Room 2 perpetrated the crime of basically making T.D. Jakes look like a Trinitarian. As long as you define the Trinity in modalistic terms, right? So I think it's problematic that the Gospel Coalition didn't ask Driscoll to step down. I think that's a problem. Quote, I was a founding member of the Gospel Coalition, this is Driscoll, and to this day enjoy deep friendships and theological unity with the men, but I'm no longer going to be a council member as I seek to focus my energies on a handful of things. If I am honest with the continued growth of all the ministries in which I am involved, it's not sustainable for me to keep up with all of them, so this is a season of pruning for me. Okay. For the record, no one asked me to leave the council, and I have no relational conflict with anyone and no disagreement theologically. The men remain friends who are welcome to speak into my life. You know, guys like me, well, I'm not welcome to speak into Driscoll's life, but those guys are. That's good. And I'm transitioning for no other reason than I find myself at the end of my tether with time and energy. So what's next for uh, Mark Driscoll? Well, funny that you would ask that. He actually has a blog post on his blog entitled, What's Next for Me? Driscoll on his blog. You can find it at pastormark.tv. Kind of appropriate. Um, the name of the blog post posted on March 28, 2012 is What's Next for Me? Mark Driscoll writes, Jesus has been exceedingly gracious to me. If I'm honest, most days lately I'm stunned at all that Jesus is doing and filled with gratitude and joy while a bit overwhelmed. Mars Hill Church continues to grow now with 14 churches that's 14 multi-sites, across four states, and a surge in attendance of over a few thousand people during the Real Marriage Campaign. Yeah, you got to remember, sex sells. Now, under the leadership of Pastor Justin Holcomb, the resurgence continues to exponentially increase in web traffic, as are applications to the Retrain program, manuscripts for the Relit Publishing, and interest in conferences, including Matt Chandler's Explicit Gospel Tour, and our first ever Resurgence National Conference in Orange County at Mariner's Church this coming October. I wonder if they would arrest me if I tried to attend that. Yeah, the reason I ask is because the first ever Resurgence National Conference um, will feature Rick Warren, Greg Laurie, Lecrae, Craig Rochelle, James McDonald, Nick Vujic, uh, I can't even pronounce the name, Miles McPherson, myself, and others. And it makes me wonder, if I showed up, would they arrest me or have me threatened with arrest at Mariner's Church? for trying to attend the Resurgence National Conference? I, I might want to ask around about that. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Acts 29 continues to plant churches with over 400 churches now planted and over 500 applicants in the assessment process. Personally, publishing has been amazing with Real Marriage Book having gone to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Speaking continues to be busy with the Real Marriage Tour having sold out in multiple cities. The media demands continue to grow and recently include Nightline, The View, Piers Morgan, Fox and & Friends, and others. Literally, it seems... Everything is flourishing, so I'm needing to focus. My goal is always to stay close to Jesus, grace the kids, and Mars Hill Church. Okay, So then he explains, he says, I am going to devote more time to 
more time than ever to developing other leaders and preachers. As part of our church planning efforts, we've started the Mars Hill Lead Pastor Residency Program. Those who are admitted will get a full salary for one year, embed at one of our local Mars Hill churches, undergo a complete immersion in how we do things, and receive formalized ministry training. I plan to be heavily and personally involved with our residents, and we'll be doing the training in leadership and preaching. So, in other words... um, What's the right way of understanding all of these changes? Well, none of them is prompted by um, the fact that he's done anything wrong. No, he doesn't think he's done anything wrong at all. Mark Driscoll has been promoted. Mark Driscoll has more influence, more power than ever. And he plans on pruning off the things where he won't have as much influence so that he can focus on the areas where he has the most influence. He's going to spend a lot of time influencing more people, um, holding his own conference, starting his own publishing company, yeah, so that he can have more and more influence. Which kind of leads to the question, um, should Mark Driscoll really be the guy that people are going to to learn how to do ministry? That's a, that's a valid question, because um, after seeing the evidence that Mark Driscoll wields way too much power and abuses that power and spiritually abuses people, I, again, I point you to the JoyfulExiles.com website as just one example. Um, my question is, should he really be influencing anybody at all, or should he really be repenting? That's, I think the right question to be asking. And thanks to the work of uh, Paul Petrie, um, I'm able to know now where some of the bodies are buried. And that's a problem, that there are bodies that are buried. And as I've been digging them up, I haven't liked what I've been finding. Let me give you just one example um, from a sermon series that um, Mark Driscoll preached a few years ago from the book of Nehemiah. I'm not going to play the whole sermon, but the name of uh, this is the third in the sermon series. It's called Mission and Mockery. And I just want you to listen to Mark Driscoll in his own words. I'll point out things along the way as far as how he's twisting the scriptures, over contextualizing it, and by doing so is actually allegorizing the text. But I want you to hear what Mark Driscoll is all about from Mark Driscoll. And also, I want you to hear what he says about his critics. Here's Mark Driscoll. Uh, as we get started, I'll, I'll get you up to speed on Nehemiah. Great story. Maybe you missed the first two sermons or slept through them. It happens. Uh, Nehemiah is a guy who's working in a capital city called Susa. Uh, he's from uh, hometown of Jerusalem. Uh, that town has been destroyed for 141 years. Looks kind of like uh, New Orleans did after it was devastated. That, that kind of town, just destroyed. Uh, the people have left. The city's abandoned. There's just a handful of people that remain. The church is destroyed. The worship of God has come to an end. And it's been that way for 141 years. Nehemiah, though, he's 100 miles away. Once he hears the news of the city, it's not new information, but it hits him in a new way. And God gives him the heart of Jesus for that city. So he spends three, four months praying, fasting, seeking God, asking God, what do you want me to do? How can we make a difference? How can we rebuild the city and the church? And his heart is for both. You need to know that one of the reasons I chose this book is that our heart is for both our city and our church. 
that our church would be a blessing to the city, that our church would love and serve the city, that our church would give to the city a gift. Uh, his name is Jesus. And, and that's Nehemiah's heart, is not just to have a church, but to have a church that blesses, loves, serves the whole city. And his heart is for both the church and the city. After three to four months of praying and asking God what he should do, he gets an opportunity because he works for the king to ask the king for help. He asked the king to reverse 13 years of political policy, to allow the rebuilding of the city, the planting of a church in that city, to give him promotion, to buy him a house, and to underwrite the whole project of the city building and the church planting. Miraculously, the king agrees. It's just a total work of God. God pulls off a miracle, about the same size of one we're going to need to really see change in our own city, that kind of miracle. So then he prepares for his relocation. Notice he just compared the city of Seattle to burned out Jerusalem. Okay. This is where, okay. What happens is, is that Driscoll allegorizes without saying it. That's kind of the key to understanding a lot of what he does in his sermons too, is that this is all called, quote, contextualization. But that's not really what it is. This is an allegorical, and I would even say, narcissistical. He's engaging in narcissistic eisegesis in the Nehemiah text. But what happens is, is that he skips a step. And so what happens is, is he'll read the text and then just give you the narcissistical conclusion. And so it, it's like doing a math problem without showing your work. You understand what I'm saying? The answer is this. That's what he's doing here. So because you, you you miss the intermediate steps or he doesn't go through the intermediate steps, he just goes from, from reading the text to narcissistical conclusion, narcissistical allegorizing of the text. You, it's, it's actually hard to detect what he's doing, but we continue. Location effort is move. It's a big move from the capital city to Jerusalem, about 100 miles. Big inconvenience. Uh, the moral of the story is, if you really want to serve God, you need to give up that other God called comfort. Uh, he's just got to go away because uh, the God of comfort is all about the path of least resistance, that which is of the greatest ease. For Nehemiah, there's nothing easy or comfortable about what God is calling him to. But in faith, because he loves God, he leaves his well-established city to go to a destroyed city, leaves a secure job to go to an insecure job, leaves a situation where he has... Uh, a really good life, all things considered, to a place he's going to face a lot of hardship and opposition, even threats against his own life. Uh, so this week we read a section of his journal. So it's very personal and intimate. You're going to get to know this man uh, from his own words, from his own diary. And this week he's going to make the move finally from the capital city of Susa down to the uh, town of Jerusalem. We pick it up in chapter 2, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and the horsemen. He says, I did it legally. I got the king's permission. I got the king's covering. I got the king's legal backing. He comes with military escort. He's safe. Otherwise, his life would have been in jeopardy making this trip. This would have taken three to four months to journey this hundred miles with supplies and such. A very major undertaking. And finally, he arrives in Jerusalem. And who's there to greet him? Well, it ain't people with cookies and cakes and a banner and a welcoming committee. Uh, the bloggers are there to harass him in verse 10. The bloggers are there to harass him. So his contextual reading is, is that when Nehemiah arrives in the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to plant a church, uh-huh, 
um, that the bloggers are there to stop him, to greet him. Notice the ad hominem here. The bloggers show up. When uh, Sambalat, the blogger Horite, and Tobiah, the blogger Ammonite, servant, heard yeah, that... Yeah, the, 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 the Sambalat, the blogger. Tobiah, the blogger. It's important to note this, that many people who have critiqued Mark Driscoll on a blog are Christians. They're not pagans. These are people who have deep biblical concerns. And at this point, they're just being brushed aside and labeled as, well, Sanballats and Tobias. Let me back that up again. The bloggers are there to harass him in verse 10. The bloggers show up. When uh, Sambalat, the blogger, Horite, and Tobiah, the blogger, Ammonite, servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. He shows up in town, right? I love God. I'm here to serve. We're going to fix the city. We're going to plant a church. And the bloggers meet him. We hate you. Die. Yeah, because, you know, those bloggers, they don't want churches planted. That's their problem. Some people have the gift of discouragement. They're very gifted with the use of that gift. And it's amazing because the first thing he receives is opposition. It's a test of his call, and this is just the Now, I want to point something out here. This is a red flag as far as I'm concerned. Red flag. Listen, um, I don't know if you know this. But I've got my fair share of critics, rightly so. And you know what? That's just what happens. But the one thing I try to do with anybody who offers criticism is pay close attention to what they're saying to see if there's any merit to the critique that they're offering me, whether the critique is offered in hostility or in concern. doesn't matter. The question is, is what this person is saying a valid criticism? Is this something I need to repent of or do differently? Okay, something they've pointed out. Because here's the deal. Um, for the most part, I don't get many atheistic pagan critics. Um, there's a few people who are self-proclaimed atheists who listen to the program, and they send me emails from time to time to let me know that, hey, I'm an atheist, I'm listening, I'm interested. I don't agree with you, but, you know, hey, you know, I'm a listener. I get those from time to time, okay? So when I receive criticism, 99.999% of the time, it's from somebody who self-identifies as a Christian, okay? Some of them have blogs. Now, I, I, I got news for you. My email filter, I don't have a filter that when somebody identifies that they're a blogger, that they automatically get flushed their emails gets flushed into my junk mail system and then, you know, quietly and safely disposed without me ever having to have any exposure to it. Nor do I have the uh, the attitude that if somebody's going to be critical of me, I'm only going to allow certain people to, quote, speak into my life. Okay. And uh, and the, the, the only people I'm going to allow to speak into my life are people that agree with the vision that I have for Pirate Christian Radio. Not at all, okay? As far as I'm concerned, Fighting for the Faith is a radio program that puts its ideas out into the free marketplace of ideas, okay? And 
the free marketplace of ideas is kind of a rough and tumble place. And in the free marketplace of ideas, people have ideas and they don't agree with the things that I say. And they will take the time to let me know that. Okay. So my attitude is not, if they're a blogger, I'm not going to listen to them. And if they don't agree with my vision for Pirate Christian Radio, as if I have one, but um, if they don't agree with my vision, I'm not going to allow them to speak into my life. I only allow people to speak into my life if they have this particular attitude and they don't write a blog. There's something wrong with somebody who isolates themselves and only hears opinion from an insular group of people whom they've very carefully selected, there's something seriously wrong with that. That creates an insular, um, nepotistic uh, leadership environment where sycophants and people who are completely unqualified become the ones who rise to power. because. In an environment like that, you don't dare truly say your mind or oppose what the leader is saying or doing because you'll quickly find yourself on the, well, the receiving end of the left foot of fellowship as other people at Mars Hill have experienced. Again, joyfulexiles.com. Let's continue way it is. And the reason that these guys don't like him is these are sort of important influential men from other towns. And the reason they don't like it is they don't want God's people to have a church, get together to worship. And you need to know this. J Jesus calls us. Yeah, bloggers don't want people to have a church or for other people to worship God. That's why they, you know, they blog about Mark Driscoll. To, to love God, to love our brothers and sisters in the church, to love our neighbors, and also to love our enemies. So we're supposed to be loving people. But just because we love them doesn't mean that necessarily people will not be our enemies. Jesus had enemies who spoke ill of him. We, as a people individually and corporately, were experienced this same opposition. Now, I want to point out here, it's hard to detect, but notice he's talking about himself, not about Nehemiah. This is narcissus. This is an allegorizing of the text. This is narcissetical eisegesis. And he reads the text and then talks about himself. He reads the text and then talks about himself. Reads the text and then talks about himself. Um, Mark Driscoll's not found in the book of Nehemiah. Neither is Mars Hill Church. And they oppose him. They're displeased. You need to know that there will be opposition in our city as there was in Nehemiah's because some people just hate religion in general. Uh, the great theologian Elton John once said, uh, he said, uh, I hate religion because it turns people into, quote, hateful lemmings. Uh, another great uh, theologian, Howard Stern, said, quote, uh, I hate all religions. So he doesn't discriminate. He just he hates all of them very very open-minded, tolerant, diverse. Uh, the reason that some people just hate religions in general is they have their own view of sexuality and gender. Or they have their own view of power or money or God or life or death or sin. Or they have their own vision for the city or they have their own values that they want to promulgate. And just by virtue of believing in the God of the Bible, Jesus, and reading the Bible and obeying the commands of God, that's just naturally offensive to some people. Other people... It's not religion in general, but it's Christianity in particular that they don't like. So they, want, they don't want churches. They don't want more Christians. They don't, they don't want that. And that's true in our city. There are some who just don't like Christians. 
Uh, it was interesting. The Seattle PI did a little story on our West Seattle campus when we opened it a few months ago. It was just a very benign sort of media piece. Mars Hill has a service. Two, three hundred people post on the website. Just talk. I hate Christians. It's like, oh, nice. And I hate Christians and I hate the Taliban. I was like, dude, that is, that is not even our team. That is not even our team. I, you know, that's, that's a totally different team than ours. You know, I mean, we don't blow stuff up. Uh, some of us even recycle. We're, you know, we're, we're, you know, it's a different team. And, and some people hate Christians. Some people just hate Mars Hill. Some people just hate me. So it's personal. Some people hate me because of what I believe. Some people hate me because of the way I say it. Some people don't think I'm funny. I am. Not everyone thinks that. <laughs> and so there's going to be all kinds of different opposition and displeasure. But at the end of the day, there will always be a backlash. As soon as we say we're going to, there's this new church going to be planted, new campus to be opened, there's going to be more people worshiping Jesus. There are just some people who say, no, we don't like that idea. We don't want there to be more Christians. We don't want there to be more churches. That's not something we're for. Notice that the bloggers are kind of lumped in with that that group too. Weird, huh? You know, from a blogging history point of view, one of the men who has blogged the most critically of Mark Driscoll historically has been Phil Johnson. Do you think Phil Johnson doesn't want there to be more churches planted and he doesn't want people to worship Jesus? Notice there's no distinction between the people who are anti-Christian and bloggers. And yet, historically, the most vocal and probably the most influential blogger who has taken on Mark Driscoll historically has been Phil Johnson. I know Phil Johnson. I've had meals with Phil Johnson. I love Phil Johnson. Great friend. Good brother. And I don't think for a second that Phil Johnson is against churches being planted and people worshiping Jesus. In fact, quite the opposite. We're opposed to... In our town, they'll tend to work legally. They'll tend to work through zoning laws. They've zoned out large churches in our city. I think it's wrong, but it's the way that it is. So we try to work around that and love our neighbor and love our city and love our enemies and try and make it all happen as graciously as we possibly can. But you need to know that there will be opposition. And there was displeasure by some. Right? It's amazing that the beginning of the work is opposition. You're going to see through the remainder of the book, this opposition grows. This opposition leads to death threats. It leads to pickets, protests. They need to get security. They have to hire Jack Bauer at one point. I mean, things go really difficult through the remainder of the book. goes on. So I went to Jerusalem Oh, it, uh, and was there three days. Now, here's what's interesting, right? Months of praying and planning, Months of traveling and journeying. He arrives in Jerusalem. He's got a ton of work to do. First thing he does, takes a three-day weekend. I read this first time. I was like, what? Three-day weekend. What is this? They have unions in the Old Testament? What is it? What is that? Three-day weekend. And I started thinking about it, and I was very convicted because Nehemiah has been praying and planning and journeying for months. And the first thing he does when he gets to town is he doesn't go immediately to work, he Sabbaths. He takes time for Sabbath. I, I wouldn't have done this. I would have pulled into town at 3 in the morning and went to work. That's just how I am. I'm a fullback for Jesus. I just put my head down, I keep my feet moving, and I just proceed forward. And what I tend to do is not take a Sabbath until I'm burned out, fried out. There are certain indicators in my life that have hit that point. 
I'm driving very aggressively. I'm eating a lot of carbohydrates. I'm drinking a lot of caffeine. I'm watching a lot of ultimate fighting. Those are, for me, sort of the indicators that it's nap time, right? I need to chill. Anyone relate? You guys know what I'm talking about? You just work, 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 work till you're fried out, burned out, frustrated, full of caffeine, want to get see someone get beat up. Weird. I want to see someone get beat up? Huh? This is a pastor. And you go, you know, that's probably not the Holy Spirit. I probably need a day off at this point. And did you watch the fight last night? Wasn't that an amazing fight? I'll tell you, you say, what does this have to do with anything? Nothing. Um, but it was an amazing fight. I think it was the best ultimate fight card I've ever seen last night. And Randy Couture is like 13 years younger, 7 inches shorter, 40-some pounds lighter, uh, with like a foot difference in reach, and beat Tim Silva for the belt. It just dominated from the opening bell forward, and at the end he gave all credit to whom? Jesus. That's why he won. And so that's why we love Jesus. Okay? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you may need to beat up someone. You need Jesus too. Uh, it was amazing. I, I was up. I was up. I was so excited. So, anyways. Uh... All right. <clears throat> Just a sampling there. So, you're a Sambalata Tobiah if you're a blogger. And you're in league with the people who hate Christians and just don't want there to be churches and people worshiping Jesus. And ultimate fighting and beating somebody to a pulp is uh, kind of an important thing in your life. Okay. Um,. Yeah, I think it's that that's just kind of the first sampling that I wanted to share with you here at Fighting for the Faith as I continue to dig deeper uh with the help of the folks who know where the bodies are buried when it comes to Mark Driscoll. All right, we are up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to a good sermon uh, from Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on faith, Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. 
Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. I have picked a good sermon, even though I think technically this might be a Wednesday evening Bible study lecture. Checked my notes rather quickly during the break there, and I think that's what this is. But despite that, it's fantastic. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Henley, Stoke-on-Trent, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. The name of the said lecture slash sermon is Adoption and Redemption, and it is based on a close reading of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. You know, I gotta tell you, it's it's wonderful to know that I can just grab any sermon randomly from Pastor Charmley's collection, and it'll be a good one. I mean, his off days are better than a seeker-driven pastor's best day. <laughs> the reason I say that? Because he sticks to the text and he preaches Christ from both the Old Testament and the New. So you're gonna hear the gospel. You're gonna hear it correctly preached and applied to you today. Unlike what we heard yesterday or even what we heard today from Pastor Driscoll. Alright, let me uh, kill the music here. Although I like this part. Ooh, uh-huh. Ooh, uh, yeah, see, I, I, I get distracted by music. Anyway, so without any further ado, here is Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley and uh, his sermon slash lecture entitled Adoption and Redemption. Here we go. Our scripture reading this evening is taken from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This letter is, as I said, one of the few letters of Paul where he has no issue in the local church he's dealing with. It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter that's designed to 
make the Ephesians realise what they have even in the midst of all the things that they don't have so Ephesians chapter 1 Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trust in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession for the praise of his glory? Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and of your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of, his of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We trust God to add his blessing to the reading of his most holy word. The great central theme of Ephesians is our blessings in Christ. Paul is always talking about the Lord Jesus, but in Ephesians, the name of Jesus is particularly prominent. Christ is always central in the New Testament here. Almost every verse you have some mention of the name of Christ, or of what he is to us. 
And we saw last week how the foundation of all those blessings is not in anything we've done, but it is in the eternal choice of God, that God has chosen whom he will bless for nothing in themselves, but that the initiative in salvation from beginning to end is God's initiative. He makes the first move and he works out his own plan. And this evening we shall be looking at just three verses, verses 5 through 7. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now this is all thanksgiving. Paul is giving thanks to God for all the things that we have in Christ Jesus. All, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And two of those blessings are described here. First of all, adoption. Secondly, redemption. So we have adoption. Now this is part of the riches of salvation. We saw last week how to be holy without blame before God in love is absolutely necessary if anyone's going to be saved because we are saved to be holy. Saved for heaven, for God, and we cannot come to God if we are not holy. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. But it is possible to conceive that God might save sinners without making them sons. The angels who are saved, the angels who kept their first estate, who did not fall, are servants, and yet they are holy angels. So it's possible to be holy and not a son. In an abstract sense, yet God chose that those human beings whom he saved would be sons. Now we have to think of adoption not in the modern sense, but in the ancient sense. In the modern world, adoption is generally childless couples or those who want more children and can't have any for some reason, will adopt a child who is unwanted by parents, or has lost the parents, and bring that child up as their own. So in modern Western societies, adoption is about having a child in your household to bring up as your own. But in the ancient world, that wasn't what happened. In the ancient world, adoption, in the first century, was exclusively performed by the rich. And what would happen would be a wealthy man, for example, Julius Caesar did this with Caesar Augustus. A wealthy man would choose an adult, an adult man who was reliable, who was trustworthy, and adopt that man as his heir. So the whole point of adoption in the Roman world was that you were choosing somebody who would be your heir. And so it was always done with an adult. Octavian, who we know as Caesar Augustus, was a distant relative of Julius Caesar. 
And Julius Caesar, having no children of his own, adopted Octavian. And as in the ancient world, as it is today, an adopted son was a son. Legally, there was no difference. And you see then there's this great difference between adoption in human terms in the ancient world and adoption in divine terms. There's this similarity that God chooses those who are not his sons to be his sons. And Paul uses the language of sonship here. In fact, we read in verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons. And adoption as sons is three words, adoption as sons, in English. In the Greek it's one word, which means adoption. It's the only word for adoption that is in Greek, and yet it does have the meaning of to adopt as a son. Because of course the only sort of adoption there was, was adoption as a son. And our translators have quite rightly, whereas some translators say, well, it's the only word in Greek for adoption, and therefore we just read adoption. Our translators have quite rightly followed the lead of the King James translators and said we need to emphasize that there is adoption to this status of sonship. At the end of adoption is the status of sonship because of the difference between ancient adoption and modern adoption. And so at this point, that there is that new status of sonship in terms of inheriting. So in the sense of adoption, all of God's children are sons because they have the rights of sons. Though indeed some of them are daughters. Paul emphasises the, the legal aspect. John emphasises that we are the children of God emphasizes that we are made partakers of the divine nature, that's what Peter says. But, John, but Paul emphasizes the right of inheritance, that we have an inheritance in Christ. But unlike the ancient adoption, God does not choose worthy people. In the ancient world you looked out for somebody who was trustworthy, if Abraham had not had a son, he would have adopted Eliezer of Damascus, who would then have inherited. Because you look for someone trustworthy to inherit, God has done that. God has in fact chosen sinners, people who were his enemies, people who were opposed to him and has chosen to save certain sinners according to the good pleasure of his will. There is no merit. It is all of grace. Writing to the Galatians, Paul observes in Galatians chapter 4, he says, Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And here's another difference between human adoption and God's adoption. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. 
You see, whatever a human father may do, he cannot make the adopted son a son by nature. He cannot impart his nature to the adopted son. Now, of course, in the modern world, because adoptions of children, there's a lot more influence that goes in to forming the character of the child, but even so, the child cannot receive the, the nature of the father. But of course, because God is the creator of all, we may be born again by his Holy Spirit. And so, John, as he opens his gospel, speaks of the blessings of becoming children of God. So, John's gospel in chapter 1, John writes, John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them he, that is Jesus, gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And you will notice, it is not of the will of the flesh, that is, not of human desire, nor of the will of man, it is not a human choice, but it is the will of God that makes children of God. You must be born again, John said to Nicodemus. And to be born again is something that we cannot do. It was sadly unfortunate title that Billy Graham chose in his book when he called it How to Be Born Again. You cannot give a how-to guide to get yourself born again. It's an unfortunate title. Rather, we are called to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the actual transformation of the heart of the Spirit is done entirely by God, is entirely the work of the Holy Spirit, entirely the work of grace. And how is this? Well, it is by Jesus Christ, because He is the Son by nature. He is the only begotten of the Father, the only begotten Son who makes the Father known. He is Son by nature. He is the Son. And there is only one who is ever called the Son of God. Christians are made sons of God, children of God, but there is only one of whom we can say he is the Son of God, and that is Jesus. His sonship is absolutely intrinsic to his nature. There never was a time when the Son was not, and there never was a time when the Son was not the Son. He has always had that relation within the Holy Trinity of Son to the Father. And it is by union with Him that we share in the blessings of His Sonship. We are joint heirs with Him. We are united with Him and we inherit with Him and in Him and by Him. And it is his work that brings about that situation where it is possible for us to be sons of God. And of course, the reason for all this is very simple. He loved 
As the Wesley puts it, he loved, he hath loved us because he would love, according to the good pleasure of his will. We are not to look about and to say, well, what was it made me better than others? But we are to say, rather, there is nothing. But we all, again, Paul will come into this at the beginning of chapter 2, that we were all children by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. There is no distinction. But God freely chooses sinners who have in themselves nothing to commend them to him. And to adopt such into his family. And why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Because the ultimate end of all things is the praise and glory of God. We are not to look even at our salvation as an ultimate end. But we are to say that Christians are saved to the glory of God. And God's glory is the highest and chiefest end in all things. All to his glory. And the glory of his grace that he chooses certain who were perishing in their own sins, who deserved to perish eternally, and chose to save them. And so we marvel and wonder at the glory of his grace. And there is a barrier to adoption, that is our sins. And that is why the second blessing that Paul enumerates here is redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And you see, we cannot be saved without the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness. We have been bought with a price. That's what redemption means. Redemption is to buy back that which was alienated, or in the case of people, to buy back a slave, to give the slave freedom. Freedom, of course, being not the freedom to follow our own wills, but the freedom to obey the will of God. In fact, the best and highest freedom, as Bishop Westcott put it in his commentary on Ephesians, he says our true freedom is to know the will of God and do it. That is freedom. We were slaves to sin, but bought back by a price. In the Old Testament you have that uh, concept that's particularly explored in the book of Ruth of the, the kinsman redeemer, which is one who has a right of redemption. And in the book of Ruth, it's particularly to do with the redemption of a piece of land. And the kinsman redeemer must buy back the land that has been lost of the, the family of Elimelech. And of course, in the book of Ruth, it's Boaz who is uh, the man who eventually marries Ruth, who is the kinsman redeemer. And he's able to redeem because he's a kinsman. Christ Jesus is able to redeem you and me because he's a human being. The only redemption price that's possible is the blood 
that is shed because first of all we are slaves, secondly we are debtors we owe God a debt of absolutely perfect obedience and that debt must be paid or we must pay the penalty and that penalty is death and so we have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ because he had to die to bear our sins himself that we might be saved the son of man Jesus said did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many a redemption price to deliver many the cross is first of all the son of God bearing our sins in his own body first of all it is the penalty of your sins and my sins being laid upon the Lord Jesus it is him taking them upon himself indeed and willingly going to that cross to die in your place, in my place to bear our sins in his own body on that tree that's what the cross is and the cross is inexplicable otherwise it's notable indeed that with those so called theologians who have tried to move away from the idea of the cross or sacrifice they really have no idea what the cross is they struggle understanding what's going on on the cross and yet the Bible is so abundantly clear he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree you don't need a PhD in theology to know what was going on on the cross because God has told us He's told us not only the New Testament, the Old Testament. You read that wonderful 53rd chapter of Isaiah and you will find it laid out in black and white. It pleased the Lord to put him to grief. Surely he has borne our sins. Surely he has He has died for us. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. For we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is not difficult. In the sense of hard to actually understand it's laid out in black and white now it's hard for the natural man to accept that we can do absolutely nothing to save ourselves that we need to be delivered to be rescued that you and I are not in the position of David facing Goliath we are the Israelites who are panicking in the background and saying we can do nothing and we are quite right, we can do nothing. If any one of the Israelites had gone up against Goliath, he would have been slaughtered in a moment. Now God's deliverer had to come. That's a great message of the book of Judges. But God has to raise up a deliverer. 
to send someone to deliver his people. And to make sure we get that lesson, God gives us a whole book where there has to be a deliverer after deliverer after deliverer. The whole Bible is about redemption. Moses could go to Pharaoh and say, God says, let my people go. But without the plagues of Israel, without the plagues of Egypt that God gave, without the power of God, the Israelites would never have been allowed to leave Egypt. So we must be delivered by God's work. By God supplying what he demands. There are those who object to the cross and say, well, how can it be grace if God demands a sacrifice? Well, the answer is very simple. Because God gives the sacrifice. Because it's all, from beginning to end, a divine work. It is not that God goes to man and says, you must find a sacrifice. But God goes and he says, there must be a sacrifice. And here he is. Behold, my son, my servant will justify many. And the first and great blessing of this redemption is the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins. The Son of God, the Apostle John 10 tells us, was manifested to take away our sins. You shall call his name Jesus, the angel said, because he shall save his people from their sins. Again, it's obvious, it's on the face of the scriptures that Jesus came to take away our sins. John the Baptist points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And to be saved from our sins in every possible sense. Our sins are not only, not only is the guilt dealt with and taken away, the power is taken away. And part of the power is the guilt, because it's the power of those sins to hold us to say, well, you've done this and it hasn't been forgiven, therefore you think of the unforgiven criminal, the man who has committed, let us say, a murder, and has not been found out. And there was a case like this some years ago, a man who committed murder and had gotten away with it. And for years and years he went around with the man who had got away with murder. And that very fact gnawed away at his heart. And every time he saw a police car, every time he saw a police officer, he was utterly terrified that they found him out until at last one day he walked into a police station and said, I did it. Arrest me. For the very fact that he had this unforgiven, undetected by man crime, gave it power over him. The very fact he had not paid for what he had done but Christ has paid the penalty for his people in divine terms and therefore sin has no more power there God imparts his Holy Spirit that we may fight against sin and God has promised that he will deliver us finally and fully from the presence of sin and into that new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. In him we have redemption, 
through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And that last call is wonderful because it says God does not give by measure. Rather the idea is that he, he pours out all his grace upon his people, all his mercy. And every sin is taken away. There is grace upon grace, abundant grace in the Lord Jesus. And so we possess so much in the Lord Jesus Christ. So much. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. First of all, the adoption into the family of God. That God has, ta- has chosen us for no reason except that he would love us. By his grace he has adopted us into his family to share the inheritance in Christ. And has re- redeemed us by the precious blood of Jesus. That we may look to the cross and say, there my sin was dealt with. There my sin was taken away. Shall we not therefore indeed praise the glory of his wonderful grace. That grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me as Newton puts it. Shall we not praise his grace. Grace that saves us, grace far greater than our sin. Amen. Amen. You know, it's best not to try to add anything to that. I'll just sign out. So what do you think? I'd love to get your e- uh, feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.